Well, good heavens. It is another episode of Good Heavens. I am Dan Wayne is uh, not here right now. I have a special guest uh, this morning. I traveled all the way down to Houston, Texas to interview... Are you a doctor yet? Are you, you're working on becoming a doctor. Yes, hopefully May 3rd I will be a doctor. So as you can tell, that's not Wayne. That is uh, Melissa Kane Travis, and I have come down to Houston to talk to her about her wonderful new book, Science and the Mind of the Maker. And we are in uh, beautiful The Woodlands, Texas. Is that correct? We have to say The Woodlands. You do. You can't just say Woodlands. Yeah, it's like The Ohio State University. It's Is it The or The Woodlands? It's Anyway, you have to put the The or The in front of The Woodlands. But when you're down here, you're like, yes, it is so beautiful because the main thoroughfare, there's, all the shops are hidden in the trees, right? That's pretty beautiful. So we're here to have a conversation about what the conversation between faith and science reveals about God. Melissa, welcome to Good Heavens. Yes, thank you for having me. It is awesome to find, we've been trying to get this together for a while. I know. And uh, you and I have been collaborating by email for the last several months on another book project that we're working on that's coming out in July called The Story of the Cosmos. And so your book here that we're going to be talking about today kind of coincides with your chapter that you did for our book, talking about mathematics and the beauty of the the resonance of mathematics in the universe, that there's numbers that seem to pre-exist, not numbers, but the concepts of math, right, that seem to pre-exist our existence. They seem to be embedded in the fabric of the cosmos like stars, correct? Yes, so the deep intelligibility, um, to be more specific, is what I'm fascinated with. Yeah, the deep Unpack that a little bit. What do you mean by the so deep intelligibility? The deep intelligibility of the cosmos. So there are multiple things at play there. First of all, the fact that the cosmos seems to be ordered in such a way that it's conducive to exploration through the natural sciences. Mm-hmm. But that alone wouldn't be enough. We also need creatures with the kind of intelligence, the kind of rationality necessary to carry out those sorts of explorations. Right. And then we have this subsidiary issue of the existence of mathematics itself and why it so beautifully maps onto the physical world. Right. So it's like this three-way resonance that's happening that I think is a remarkable uh, pointer towards there being a higher reality. Yes, because if you, a simple example, if you would have like butter and sugar and flour in the kitchen you would need a pastry chef to really make that come out but if you stick a five-year-old in there butter flour sugar is going to be a little you're not going to get a croissant out of that you need somebody there to make the croissant so that three-part you need martha stewart butter sugar flour whatever and then you get the croissant but you put a five-year-old so it's weird that if this world is just naturalistically evolved we shouldn't expect such a resonance like that Is that what you're arguing? Yes, exactly. So it's not that we don't have, to use the word naturalistic loosely, that we don't have theories about how each of the separate parts may have happened. Uh But what is beyond the scope of scientific explanation altogether is this higher level why question. Why is it that these things are connected in just such a way that we're able to gaze at the heavens and not only see beauty, but also understand the rational order that's underlying it all? 
And there, I think your book is very important for such a time as this because there are popularizers of science who are promulgating the idea that the why questions and the how questions are kind of one and the same. They think the why questions, the philosophy, such as the idea of Stephen Hawking in his book a couple of books ago, philosophy is dead in the grand design, that the philosophical musings seem to be, if, they, if they're not physical, they're a waste of time. I think it was Sean Carroll in a blog last year. He's a cosmologist. You know Sean Carroll. He's a cosmologist who's written the big picture, and he blogs and has a podcast now. But he had said that he thought the why question of the universe, these deeper why questions, uh, I think he called it a piece of metaphysical baggage that we need to discard. And, you know, so it's not just that that beauty is there and it seems so obvious, but there also seems to be a tremendous backlash against it. So that also seems to suggest a viability of what you're saying. This isn't just something you you made up, right? This isn't something, it seems to exist on any place in the globe where you go. If you're an astronomer or mathematician, right? I love what you have in the chapter when you were talking about how you got interested in this as a child. Uh, tell me a little bit about... Donald in Math Magic Land and <laughs> how that made it into this book. <laughs> yes, so I'm a child of the late 70s through late 80s and cable television actually came about during my early childhood. Yeah, there are many people that don't even know rabbit ears. Right, right, right. right. We had the bona fide rabbit ear antenna on our television I set. Did. We had, did it have tinfoil? No, we didn't, didn't have tinfoil. No, didn't go that far. And then we had the big giant antenna on the roof of the house yep, to yep. help with TV You remember the reception. old pictures of the neighborhoods with TV antennas yeah, on the roofs? Yeah, yeah, totally. And you'd try to throw the football and knock it off is what... Uh-huh, <laughs> uh, or, you know, the birds would but, roost uh, there. But, so this was, this was a Disney cartoon. I think you said it, you could see it on YouTube, right? You can see it on YouTube for free now. Yeah, that's yeah. right. And, and so this, how did this, how did Donald... Oh, boy. <laughs> How did Donald uh, get you into this? Yeah, so as a kid, if, to the best of my memory, I was maybe seven or eight years old when I first saw Donald in Math Magic Land on the Disney Channel back in the early 80s. And the point of this little, I think it's like 27 minutes long, this little short Donald Duck feature film is that mathematics pervades reality. It pervades nature specifically so it starts out talking about the ancient greeks specifically the pythagoreans and it goes through examples of mathematics in nature such as the geometry that we see in plant life or sea life and the mathematics that comes into play when we look at musical harmonies Mm -hmm. for example Mm -hmm. and i was fascinated by this idea that the kind of math that I did with pencil and paper in the classroom at school had something to do with the things that we look at in nature. And it that never left me. It's kind of mm. been a fascination of mine ever since I was a child. Mm. So how old were you when you first were captivated by this? Seven or eight years old? Seven or eight, yeah. Yeah. And so I, I've taught elementary school and middle school myself. I think there's something wrong with even the way we do education because it doesn't capture it's done in isolation you go to math on first period and then you go to english right it's not integrated it's not integrated mr jones has nothing to do with miss smith i have to do my sums with miss smith and then i have to do my sentences and verbs with mr jones and i'm like what is what do these and then i have to go to science 
and I don't even know that poetry and numbers and, and English and verbs have anything to do with science, but it all, there's no, it, it's so compartmentalized in, right. for younger kids. And then Disney, one of his genius things was to be able to harmonize things, to be able to bring things together. And look what happened. It was great. That was awesome. That's right. You, so, so Disney got you into this. And then as, as, a, as you were growing up, how did you continue to feed that curiosity? Or did you? Or did it kind of go by the wayside? Or how did you continue to, to delve into this? So I always loved science and math growing up. I ended up going into my undergrad as a biology major. Thinking I would eventually go to medical school, deciding, thank goodness, before I finished my biology degree that that wasn't what I was cut out for, and just decided, well, I will take a few years off work in biotechnology and think about what I might want to go to graduate school for. Mm. And before I knew it, 10 years went by, (laughs) before (laughs) I knew what I wanted to be when I grew up, Uh And, and that's when I got very interested in the philosophical side of scientific questions yeah so you have a quote in the book it's either in our book or your book i've been editing so it forgive me if it's not in this one or if it's ours but you quote john lennox who is himself an oxford mathematician i think he's emeritus does he still teach now i mean he's still actively out there talking he's amazing um but you quote lennox as saying that not everything a scientist says is scientific and you just mentioned the integration of philosophy and mathematics. What what do you think? What were you thinking when you included Lennox's quote? What were you? What did he mean? What do you think he meant by that? That not everything a scientist said is, is scientific. Because a lot of times I think when you hear a scientist speak, the general we tend to go, oh, a scientist said that it must be science. Um, what was he saying? Well, I think you've hit the nail on the head. I think he's saying we see these highly credentialed, respected figures from the scientific community um, in the popular media. For example, Neil deGrasse Tyson is one that Mm -hmm. most people would recognize, uh, mainly from his Cosmos series. Right. And they hear them make these pronouncements, and they assume that these pronouncements are backed up by science. Mm -hmm. And very often... That isn't the case. Very often, it's a it's a full fledged philosophical pronouncement that doesn't have scientific evidence backing it up. It has philosophical precommitments backing it up. But they mm-hmm. hear it from this figure of science who they respect, and they automatically conclude that well, science is pointing towards the truth of this pronouncement this person has made. And very often, that just isn't the case at all. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Specifically, I think one of the most masterful communicators of science was certainly Carl Sagan. And if you watch Cosmos or if you read Cosmos, uh, he also wrote the book Contact. Um, there's there's a lot of, and I don't mean this disrespectfully, non-science in Cosmos. There's a lot of philosophy and metaphysics, uh, especially his famous quote from The Pale Blue Dot, uh, where he is and famously so, and we seem to be repeating this mantra over and over again, the idea of human insignificance in the cosmos. Right, based on size. On size, and that's, yeah. that's non-science. It's, it's a philosophical, metaphysical uh, predilection. Why do you think, in your estimation and all your research, why do you think that scientists will make that, I've heard it, you've heard it, that make that claim of insignificance based on our size in the universe? What's, the, what's going on there? You know, I really have no idea. 
I have no idea why they're hung up on this issue because we can go back to the 17th century and see excellent counter arguments against it, excellent philosophical counter arguments to this idea. Johannes Kepler, who's central to my dissertation research right now, he was talking about how size has nothing to do with human significance. And mm -hmm. he could have never have fathomed exactly how large the universe is right. as we know it today. Absolutely. But he was already saying, this is ridiculous. So that tells me that this flawed philosophical argument was already being made because he felt the need to respond to it. I want you to read from your own book uh, a quote from Max Planck regarding size in the universe. Uh, he is one of my favorites. I love Max Planck. Well, let's, but before you read that, let's let's just let's just kind of give Max a little background. Who is he? Why do you like him? Okay, so Max Planck, he was a German theoretical physicist at the University of Berlin. He ended up being a colleague of Albert Einstein, and he was one of the central figures of what I informally call the physics revolution of the early 20th century. Absolutely. Nobel Prize winner, mm -hmm. a brilliant, brilliant man. But he saw a deep compatibility between science and the existence of God. Mm -hmm. And there's a collection of essays he wrote that's now entitled Scientific Autobiography and Other Papers. Yes, I got that book because of editing your paper and reading your book. I got that book on yeah, Amazon. It's, it's really outstanding. cool. It's Very really readable. You don't have to have a science background no. to understand what he talks about. And he himself went through a lot of trials and tribulations uh, throughout uh, World War II, as I understand it, uh, right. uh, in Germany and Nazi Germany and things like that. He experienced, uh, he lost his house. He lost the, right. so, but anyway, um, not to sidetrack, but, but in terms of this idea that science is promulgating that we are insignificant because we're small, what did, what did Planck have to say about that? Okay. This is his quote. How pitifully small, how powerless we human beings must appear to ourselves if we stop to think that the planet Earth on which we live our lives is just a minute, infinitesimal moat of dust. On the other hand, how peculiar it must seem that we, tiny creatures on a tiny planet, are nevertheless capable of knowing, though not the essence, at least the existence and dimensions of the basic building blocks of the entire great Cosmos. Yeah, so it seems disproportional. If we're going to go by size, it seems rather than being insignificant, it seems much more the case that how can something, I mean, if taking our size, we are cosmically small, but how something so small in comparison to the rest of the universe can know so much about a universe that is so enormous. It seems quite counterintuitive to say we're not insignificant. And here's how I like to turn this. It's a pretty, you don't have to be a smart person to think about this, but it makes total sense. The idea that, okay, if we found microbial bacteria on Mars or under the oceans of Europa, that's not going to be insignificant. Bacteria on a frozen moon is not going to be insignificant. So a little microwave, cosmic frozen microwave dinner, if we find it, won't be insignificant. But we are. That doesn't right. make any sense. Right, it doesn't make any sense. So it, sh it shows the strange inconsistency there. Right. Um, there was a, so and, and so we, we've got mathematics, we've got philosophy, we've got science, science talking philosophy and sort of disguising it as science. Now, some I don't think people are intentionally trying to deceive, but it's, it is good to discern, and I think your book is an excellent help meet for that, 
to be able to discern when a scientist is speaking science and when a scientist is speaking philosophy or metaphysics, which they can. We're not saying that they can't do right, it. Right, right. But it's just not empirically verifiable, you know, scientific method, repeatable, testable kind of thing. There is a, another connection that I want to make, and I really thought this was one of my uh, favorite parts in your book, was you included a poem about or from, uh, is it Longfellow? It is Long, yes, Henry yes. Wadsworth Longfellow. I love it because it's, it's very childlike, and I love the idea of childlikeness and the universe. I think that's the best kind of attitude to have when we're talking about the cosmos because you go outside and you hear stories of astronomers and scientists who from childhood knew that they wanted, to, like you, you know, they see the stars and like, I got to, what's that? I have to know what that is. But I, I love this poem because it, it reminds us of childlikeness and you included it in a science book and I want you to read the poem and tell us why you included that. Okay, sure. And nature, the old nurse, took the child upon her knee, saying, here is a storybook thy father has written for thee. Come wander with me, she said, into regions yet untrod, and read what is still unread in the manuscripts of God. And he wandered away and away with nature, the dear old nurse, who sang to him night and day the rhymes of the universe. And whenever the way seemed long or his heart began to fail, she would sing a more wonderful song or tell a more marvelous tale. I love that. Now, uh, you can probably figure out why you put that in the book, but could you explain what, what, what you're thinking there? Yeah, so I am very interested in promoting awareness about this idea that science represents God's natural revelation to us. He's revealing himself to us through the cosmos. Mm -hmm. And I thought that poem so beautifully spoke to that, talking about nature having something to teach us um, from the manuscripts of God. So this idea of um, two books of God's revelation goes way, way, way back to the early church fathers. Mm -hmm. And I thought it's beautifully communicated in Absolutely. that poem. Absolutely. It's, it reminds me of uh, C.S. Lewis and J.R.R. Tolkien, how they, their landscapes in Narnia and Middle Earth seem to be almost autobiographical that you can argue that landscapes in those books reflect the personality of the authors. Right. I even go so far as to say, and I don't know if I'd write a book on this one day, but Middle Earth is Tolkien. I mean, the trees, the wind, the stars, the light, that's his life, I think. I mean, yeah, I, yeah. Tom Bombadil, that's just, <laughs> what is that? <laughs> you know, uh, Dr. Ordway, Holly Ordway said, uh, I asked her about Bombadil the other day, and she said it was his love of the English countryside. And he kind of left it at that. And you kind of have to go, yeah. I mean, but, but the thing about Bombadil and about nature in this world is there are things that are so exceptionally odd that we have to come at it with childlike wonder and not this sort of pedantic pronouncement that we know exactly what's going on. Do you find, though, with all this beautiful resonance with mathematics and things, that there, there was a shift after it was so successful with Kepler and Galileo and Newton and Einstein and Planck and everybody, that mathematics was so successful that there was a deleterious side effect of mathematical reductionism. Can you speak a little bit about that, where, where it, math gets used? It's like, you know, here's a butter knife for buttering your toast, but you don't hit the cat with it, right? And so math has become sort of the butter knife that we whack the cat with. It's a five-year-old, but, but what, what happened? What, what was this? Because it's, it's beautiful, but, but now how do naturalists or a naturalistic, a purely naturalistic approach, um, understand mathematics without God. What's yeah. The... Well, so we can go back to Einstein, who you just mentioned. And 
how he struggled with this very idea. Mm-hmm. And he wasn't willing to go as far as monotheism because he was repulsed by the idea of a personal God. Yeah. But yet, over and over and over in different writings and different letters, he would make the comment, it makes no sense that the world is mathematically intelligible. Mm. It just doesn't make sense. This is not something we ever should have expected. We should have expected a chaotic world that we couldn't wrap our minds around, no matter how hard we tried. Mm-hmm. So it's it's like a, this, a naturalist or a materialist or a lot of atheists I'll talk to will say that um, the the laws of mathematics disprove the Bible or that we can explain things mathematically, therefore we have no need of God. But this wasn't Einstein's approach at all. I mean, we don't, his his theism, if it was theism, was kind of a weird, you say in the book, a kind of a cross between a mild deism and maybe some pantheism thrown yeah, in. Yeah. It was a confused, a confused weird, muddle. Yeah. Weird little blend. So yeah. a good cautionary thing that you bring up, I think, uh, that's good to know is that when Einstein says God, He's not talking about the God of Abraham, right. Isaac, and Jacob. Exactly. Even though he's Jewish, technically from a Jewish background, mm-hmm. um, he's Spinoza's God, or just some philosophical meandering and musing, maybe, maybe not. But um, so his, he was confused, couldn't explain mathematics rationally. But what, what did you find in your research about how mathematics is utilized apart from understanding it as coming from a creator? What, what do the contemporary secular sciences do and how do they explain it? So it seems that most of them who are very well-versed in physics and mathematics, but yet are not theists, will resort to mathematical Platonism. Mm. They'll say mathematics is just a brute fact of the universe. These objective mathematical facts, numbers themselves, and all of these operations of numbers that are objectively and timelessly true, they just are. They're just... Don't you think that's a science stopper? I mean, when I say to people God is a necessary being, you always get the idea, you always get the question, well, who made God? Like, like that's some kind of defeater argument. Right, right. Well, where did you get that theology that God was created? I, that's what I want to know. But, but that's the thing that, that they, won't, they won't go past that boundary. Who created math? How can you have a... So they will posit a just is abstract entity. Yes. But they will not... But it's the same... But so to me, it seems like that God, the math becomes almost deified. Uh, I was reading a cosmologist. I don't know what it was. My mind is so terrible. But it, the gentleman said that, that cosmology, astronomy, borrows heavily from monotheism in, mm. in terms of mm-hmm. its terms. If you think about this, laws governing the universe having come from a singularity. That's right. I mean, it, it's, it's, it's monotheistic in its fabric. And I think it's exactly what Paul says in Romans. Although they knew God, mm-hmm. you know. <laughs> And, and what's even more interesting is that when you get down to the singularity, which is the, the entity that existed before time, if you can say that, whatever the universe came from, you still need either something to be eternal or infinite in order to have that. You have to have some sort of infinite string of causes to lead up to whatever that thing was. But then that doesn't really work. But So then you posit an eternal universe or an eternal multiverse. And then you start creating something far more fantastical than Fantasia. I That's mean, right. You are in... When, when you're talking about mathematics now, this is a question I, I was having when, as I was reading the book. How do you distinguish between, in physics and cosmology, mathematics is fundamentally abstract, in the abstract, or would you say that mathematics belongs to the empirical realm? 
it, it seems to sort of, you need math to do empirical science, but then the math itself is not empirical. Is that, that's, that's the confusion. I mean, when you talk about, well, this weighs three ounces or this is five feet high, obviously we're using numbers, but we're assuming the uh, veracity of numbers. We're not proving numbers. I can't set three apples on the table and go, that's three. No, that's not what it is. So there's, there's even in the empirical science, there is the reliance upon mathematics as abstract and metaphysical. Does that make sense? That's right. And it's so interesting how many scientific discoveries have occurred using mathematical systems that were devised years and years, sometimes centuries and centuries before there was an application for them. Mm. So mathematics has this objective existence, mm. and the way these systems work is a, has objective truth to it, even outside of any possible way we could use it to unlock secrets of nature. Hmm. So, for example, my hero, Johannes Kepler, he was using the mathematics associated with conic sections or the kinds of curves yeah. you get when you slice a three-dimensional cone in different ways, the parabolas and so and on and poor so Johannes forth. tried to build a, a platonic solid model of the cosmos right? and yes, drove, he drove did. himself he did. crazy. He did. <laughs> uh, but that's just a good example of how someone could pick up a mathematical construct that comes from ancient Greece mm. and then apply it to planetary orbits um, and have already to go this mathematical yes. approach to being able to describe the kinds of curves involved with planetary orbits. So in a dumb kind of way, it's like the Greeks came up with mannequins before there was J.C. Penney. <laughs> yeah, that's a good analogy. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, the armless fashion, you know. Um, so, so there is... Now, this is one thing that I puzzle over with math. Would you say, because I, I hear Dr. Bill Craig talk about this a lot. He uses the number seven as a lot of his examples in his lectures about abstract objects, which we were talking about mathematics. An abstract object cannot cause anything. That's right. So mathematics, would you say, the best way to look at mathematics is that it describes something in the abstract? So we can't see an ellipse, but through mathematics we can see the effects of an ellipse. Is that how, is that a good way to put math? Would you? Yeah. You know, it's very tricky. I don't think that, um, that's a terrible way to put it. Um, it depends on which branch of mathematics you're talking about. Um, <laughs> as to how weird it turns out to be. So for example, we could talk about, um, Euclid's proof for the existence of exactly no more and no less platonic solids mm -hmm. okay five there's five so yeah. there's five platonic solids there can't possibly be fewer and there can't possibly be more we have this watertight proof that euclid has developed that proves the exact existence of this set of five platonic polyhedra mm -hmm. what are these this string of numerical proofs what are those referring to Two. Yeah. Well, they're referring to five platonic solids. Well, do those exist or do they not exist? Well, we have a proof for them. So what is that proof referring to? Mm -hmm. So the Platonist would say, well, it's referring to these real entities that have objective existence. They're just immaterial. It's, they're abstract objects. It's Plato's the realm of the ideal. Right, or right? the platonic heaven. The platonic heaven. Like mm -hmm. like all chairs come from chairness, 
right. all trees come from treeness. Right, right, right. There's so some... it was the realm of um, perfect reality, a static realm where nothing changed. Yeah. And you can see this concept is why the early Christians just gave Plato a bear hug and said, come on in, Plato, have some coffee. <laughs> right, right. <laughs> Uncle Plato, right? <laughs> he's he's just really describing heaven here as really the yeah. mind of God, one of these things. Yeah, so the Christians, what they did was just they moved the platonic heaven that contained all these abstract objects. They just moved it into the mind of God. Mm-hmm. You know, mm-hmm. Augustine is probably the most famous early Christian father who said, look, of course there was a rational plan for creation, but we cannot say that existed anywhere outside the mind of God. There can't be anything that's as ultimate as God. He didn't go to Costco and get a blueprint set of Legos and try to build something. (laughs) Right. I have a, I have a friend. Well, you, you, he knows, he'll, he knows I'll be referring to him here. Um, we talk about, uh, uh, he's, um, a Molinist, and there's some kind of philosophical connotations with Molinism about uh, uh, counterfactuals. And I, I think of God, when I hear counterfactuals, I think of God kind of going and selecting from all possible worlds as though there's something independent of God selecting, but it's all getting back to the idea of what the patterns are in the mind of God. So the, the platonic solids or mathematics seems to be what we're getting at here. The bigger picture is there seems to be a pattern that is extant in the universe that does not come from within the universe. It seems to, to exist outside of it or they're, it's coming from somewhere. You have a wonderful chapter in here on DNA and the information and the data. Uh, scientists are using that word all the time. And Dr. Ward, Michael Ward, gave me that definition we were talking the other day about data means something given, datum, right? So there's something given and there's a ton of data, 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 in DNA, it, it seems like so the mathematics you're talking about, the platonic solids, all of these ideals you're talking about seem to also transfer into DNA. What did you discover when you did your research for that chapter? Do you find a, a very similar concept in mathematics as you do with DNA proteins? Yeah, so it's interesting the analogies that you can draw between DNA and mathematical computer coding, for example. Hmm. Um, so it's just a very, very close analogy there. Um, and I think computer scientists will especially appreciate um, the relationship between the two disciplines, I guess you could say. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, I wish I had had room in the book to talk about geometry in biology. That's, um, the next, that's your next book. Yeah, maybe so. Mm-hmm. Um, because I, I think that that's, to me at least, it's even more fascinating than the coding DNA mathematics relationship. So there's information in DNA, information in mathematics, information in platonic solids. Um, fair to call it information? Some people would object that we're, we're being anthrop- too anthropomorphic by calling all this stuff information. No, no, I think that's fair. You think so? Mm-hmm. How would you, so how would you argue to somebody that might object on the grounds that we're, we're just, this is the only kind of metaphor we can have because we're people. Uh, and we're over anthropomorphizing everything, and, and therefore we've just got a big person in the sky doing all this stuff. What? How would you respond to a skeptic who would say something like that? Because I hear that a lot. I do when okay, I talk. Interesting. To, yeah, okay. the, the idea that that anthropomorphic language is all we have, and therefore our metaphors are always going to sound like there's a person in the sky doing things, but there's no reason to uh, think that way necessarily. But to me, it's like going to Mount Rushmore 
and going, gosh, I wonder how long it took them to carve all of that. And my friend goes, well, wait a minute. Let's not posit carvers just yet. We, we, we weren't here. We don't know. It just seems like it's so, it would be so counterintuitive to say, to, to come up with any other viable explanation for what we're looking at. Yeah, so obviously we can't get outside of human rationality. Yeah. That's a, a line that we can never cross. We can't get outside of human rationality and look down on it and yeah. see what kinds of bad assumptions that we're making. You right. know, this is the rationality we have. This is what we got to work with. So I guess my answer to someone who raises that kind of objection would be, look, if what you're saying is the case, then why is it that this mathematical language that we've developed over millennia is so insanely applicable to physical stuff? Yeah. It doesn't seem like a seven and a rock should have anything in common. Right, right, right. And some will try to answer, well, we've developed these mathematical systems to fit physical observations, but that doesn't work because we have so many counterexamples of what I was talking about earlier, where the mathematical systems that were just developed in the discipline of pure mathematics Mm -hmm. for no reason besides the beauty of the mathematical systems themselves, years and years and years later, turned out to have perfect applicability to something in nature. So that's not a situation of inventing mathematics to use to study something physical, it, the mathematics was just already there. You, you, one of the scientists you quote makes that distinction between what is discovered and concepts that are imposed upon mm-hmm. the physical world. So there's right. a discovery in the physical world and an imposition of a, a theory on the physical world. Can you talk a little bit about the differences between the two there? Do you remember what you were? I don't remember. Okay. There was... Uh, Eugene Wagner, I think. Oh, yes, yes, yes. Yes. And I thought that was a really good distinction. If I can, I underlined it. He called it the, well, you call it the unreasonable effective of mathematics. Yes, and he called it that. He called um, his paper that. Yeah, here it is. Here it is. So this is a quote from, is it Wagner or Wagner? It looks like Wigner. I've always pronounced it Wigner. Wigner. That's what I would think it would be. Um, He's a Hungarian physicist from the 1960s, um, Eugene Wigner, and he has this quote, and I, I like you have it in a bold here in book in your book, uh, called the the unreasonable effectiveness of mathematics. So exactly to what you're saying, mm-hmm. it's weird that numbers should have anything to do with leaves and panda bears and giraffes. Right, right, and we should be clear that he was not a Christian. He was not a Christian. And But yet he says this, the enormous usefulness of mathematics in the natural sciences is something bordering on the mysterious. There is no rational explanation for it. Right, right. And you know what? We have scientists today that are still struggling with this strange conundrum. Mm. So we have Max Tegmark. Yes, I have read some of his book, A Mathematical Universe. Yes, so um, great book to read if you're interested in this topic. Uh, He's one of those that goes to an extreme form of Platonism to explain the existence of objective mathematics. And uh, he also also is a multiverse hypothesis proponent where he, there was one chapter that just kind of blew my mind where he was literally 
seriously contemplating the idea of of universe being filled with our doppelgangers. Oh, interesting. Where he, so it, it's almost like, and I, I don't know what Tegmark's religious views are, but it seems like if you want to go end around God for a universe, and you want to posit an infinite number of universes or an eternal multiverse or whatever, you end up getting rid of one eternal being, and then, but you multiply, you fill the universe with other eternal beings, which are quasi-divine, quasi-omnipresent. <laughs> but he goes on to explain how he almost got killed in a bike accident in one universe, and in another universe he died, in another universe he's seven feet tall or whatever. But that, he was, it wasn't funny, he was literally talking about the possibility, mathematically speaking, that there could be many of us in all possible worlds and all if, if the universe goes on forever. That's right. And what's even stranger about his view is that he believes that all physical reality is nothing but a manifestation of a mathematical object. Wow. So how that works, I do not know. I don't either. How if mathematics doesn't have causal powers, mm. how is it that mathematics can then manifest itself as physical objects? So if, it's, <laughs> it's almost like the Apostle Paul only with the number three. In three, we move and live and have our being. Right, Or, or right, like right. In, <laughs> in pi, we live and move yes, and so have our being. that's very Pythagorean. <laughs> So, so, but, but that, that, that's interesting that we, we take divine causal powers and we apply them to abstract non-causal agents. Right, right. And that's really ancient truth. That's Romans 1. I mean, we, we know God. I mean, our cosmologies and our sciences and our mathematics uh, are replete with language that talk about causation, intelligence, and yet we're ascribing all these things to, to abstract ideas and objects. That's right. And so your book is a, a helpful flashlight or a, it, it is a helpful way to unmask that and to give you, you know, it's like a, a breath of fresh air to, to, to see here, to here. Here's some simple language that cuts through a lot of what is often passed as, as hard science. Yeah, I hope so. I hope it's a good antidote. And I hope it will at least get non-believers thinking about the kind of arguments they're used to hearing, the kind of arguments they're used to using, Mm -hmm. um, and just see, hey, there's a whole lot more nuance to this than what's commonly spread around on the Internet. Yeah, and it's it's helpful. I mean, in social media, it seems more increasingly, even even intelligent adults resort to using memes and... Mm-hmm. And pro- promulgating things that are just not true or very thoughtful. It's hard to have a thoughtful discussion on Twitter or whatever. Um, but that's how bad ideas sort of get solidified in the popular mindset. That's uh, right. You hear this over and over again. Uh, extraordinary claims require extraordinary evidence. Uh, science disproves the Bible. Uh, that kind of thing. And one more thing I'd like to kind of briefly touch on with you is the objection to God of the gaps that uh, a lot of skeptics will say that Christians use science, but then they hate science, but they use science, but they hate science. But every time there's a scientific mystery, Christians are quick to rush in with God and explain it. Well, God did it. And, and, and this is the classical God of the gaps argument. Um, how do you diffuse that bomb when you hear people use that? Cause that seems to be one of the most common ones that I hear a lot. God of the gaps, God of the gaps. Yeah. Yeah. So you could write an entire book on this phenomenon. Actually, there are different things going on depending on who you're talking to. So God of the gaps, this idea that if there's something science has not yet explained, we just plug in supernatural powers 
um, to fill in the explanation. Um, hence the name God of the Gaps. Mm-hmm. Now, to be fair, God of the Gaps arguments have been made by Christians for centuries and centuries. Yeah, I've probably made a few. I mean, it's unfortunate yeah. it, that this has been going on for centuries and I centuries. Think people are still doing it with dark matter and dark energy. Well, God is obviously yeah, yeah, yeah. pushing the universe across, whatever. Right. Yeah. right, right, right. Now, to be fair, to be fair, okay, just because in the past science has filled in gaps of our knowledge about why some physical things are the way they are, it doesn't follow from that that science will continue to fill every gap that ever arises. Well, and it's okay. like, how did uh, how did coffee get made this morning? <laughs> yeah, I can explain it mechanistically. Right, right, right. The Keurig and all of the hot water and all of that, the electricity and everything. But that doesn't do away with somebody the barista or the person that made the coffee, right? Right, right. So that's a little bit of a separate issue. What I was getting at first was um, we have to be fair, logically speaking, that just because science has filled in material explanation gaps in the past, it doesn't mean there will never be a gap that it cannot explain materialistically. Now, that's one issue, but that the other issue is the misuse of the God of the gaps mm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. accusation, right? So, so if you have, for example, someone say, um, look at the amazing storage capacity of the DNA molecule um, and how incredibly rational um, astrophysics is mathematically or something along those lines. And, the skeptic wants to come back and say, oh, you're committing a God of the gaps argument by attributing this rationality in nature to um, supernatural power, to the existence of God, to the existence of a creator. Mm -hmm. That's a misuse of the God of the gaps accusation because it doesn't matter if we ever have a comprehensive physical explanation for all things. Right. That doesn't rule out the existence of an intelligence who's responsible for all of it. I love the way John Lennox says it. He says, we're not looking for a God of the gaps. We're talking about a God of the whole show. Yeah, yeah. So, you know, in evolutionary biology, for example, suppose one day we have a watertight, comprehensive theory of biological evolution that matches up great with all the data. Um, We can demonstrate mechanisms in the lab, Mm -hmm. and it's just perfect start to finish. I personally don't see us ever getting there, but suppose we did. Yeah, let's say it's possible. Let's say we did. Um, That would in no way undermine the case for theism. Mm Mm-mm. Because we're talking about two different levels of explanation, as you were saying a minute yeah, ago. Yeah, right, right. And yeah. I, th- I think the what you're talking about there also is important because if the object, the God of the gaps objection that is leveled at Christians, um, oftentimes this is one of those underlying presuppositions that comes in the objection itself. I think is if you're saying that our materialistic discoveries are pushing God out. Uh, or filling in that naturalism fills in the gaps or whatever. It's a theological assumption that it doesn't make any sense unless you think that space telescopes can see heaven 
or that microscopes can under can can detect the finger of God. Uh, the, your the underlying assumption of that is that science no would know God if science discovered God. Right, right. So you have to ask someone the very elementary question sometimes. Well, what is it that science studies? Well, exactly. What what do you do? Do people at JPL Labs build satellites and telescopes and detectors to to see angels? Right. You know, right, I mean, right. if if they do. I mean, cool, but 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 I don't think they do. But you know, if but that's what the God of the Gaps kind of presupposes that if God existed, science would find him, mm-hmm. uh, uh, right. or the objection that uh, science uh, disproves the Bible. Mm-hmm. That's a right. a favorite uh, no no for me. It's like well, and then immediately they go to talking snakes and donkeys, and yeah. Yeah. I, I always just like to point him to Alex the African gray parrot. Have you ever oh, heard of Alex? Yes, yes. <laughs> That's yes. an amazing bird. I'm like, he if, is. if he can, he can ward, or he could touch something, and he would know it was wood or wool or some kind of fabric. He he would eat corn and say corn, and and if he could tell if it was cold or <laughs> it's a wonderful parrot. But I'm like, you know, but to me, if God could spin galaxies and suns with his fingers, I'm like, one animal with a voice is not a big deal. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> and and yeah. science wasn't out to disprove talking animals. I mean, right. nobody, no, no scientific <laughs> undertaking that I've ever known of has has done a peer-reviewed paper on why serpents don't talk. I mean, it's just not, it's just not there. Um, C.S. Lewis said it really well, and I wish I could quote him verbatim, but he was talking about the idea of the explanatory power of science. Mm. And he said, science can teach us about the cosmos all day long. Um, and going back to what I said a minute ago, perhaps one day science will give us a comprehensive material explanation of everything in the cosmos but what science can never do by its own nature is tell us if there's anything outside yeah that's exactly right and uh, i can't help but you know we've made some tremendous you mentioned the uh the cern the the large hadron collider in your book and i i'm fascinated with that i have no idea what's going on down there I had a grad student, I was driving for Lyft this summer, I had a grad student who was applying to work as an intern at the Collider. Wow. He's a French citizen, but he spoke, I mean, he wasn't, he didn't speak France, but he was, his, his grandparents are in France, so he had citizenship, but he was applying at CERN, we had a wonderful, delightful talk. <laughs> I was like, you know, because the, the, the large thing is underneath Switzerland and France, I think it's on part, one side is on France and the That's other side. That's right, it crosses the border. Yeah, and so I was like, uh, you know, the Swiss are using the Collider to make cheese. <laughs> <laughs> and the French are using the other side to make wine. How funny. <laughs> it's a giant wine cheese maker underground. I love it. Because <laughs> <laughs> they're smashing stuff together. I mean, maybe they're smashing grapes on the French side and smashing cheese. And they. Yeah. And uh, so I was joking with the kid. I was like, your grandparents, because they'd lived right near the collider. So they kind of tell him what's going on there. And it's like, yeah, we saw some men going in there with a large block of cheese. And (laughs) (laughs) anyway, but, you know, seriously, though, that that apparatus is designed to sort of smash particles at something near the speed of light. Um, And to me, I know we've made a lot of remarkable discoveries with that. But on the other side, there's a whole set of presuppositions that are built into what we hope to discover with this. If we get down to the very small, maybe we'll see the secrets to the universe. But that's like um, crashing automobiles into walls to get a theory of automotive engineering. Right. You get part of it, but what do you lose when you smash things like this? What are you losing? You're losing the bigger picture. It's so fragmentary. Yeah, you find a Higgs boson, but that's like finding a bolt and going, oh, the bolt's the secret to the BMW. Your husband's a car mechanic, right? There's a lot more to smashing BMWs than... 
uh, th that goes into the car engineering part of things. But, but I wonder, with the materialistic presuppositions, the way we do science prevents us from actually making discoveries to some extent. I mean, we will find some information, but it seems like the presuppositions that go into the machines that we make, we're building our own errors, I guess, into the science, thinking that, uh, well, it's like taking a, you know, in Texas we talk about the chupacabra. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you know, so you're out, in, you're out in the woodland somewhere and hiking and you take a picture, you take a selfie and, you know, three-quarters of your head is in the picture and the chupacabra, chupacabra goes sneakily behind you and you, you miss the picture because you're taking a selfie, right? And so the idea is that, that what are we missing when we are self-centered versus God-centered? So by removing Jesus from the universe, it's like taking a selfie with the chupacabra behind you. Yourself has blocked out part of the, the thing. And I think that's exactly in a lot of ways what modern science does and what your book does so wonderfully in reminding us the maker thesis says there's a chupacabra behind you and it's worth mm -hmm. taking a look at, right? You're missing something by not recognizing the maker, right? Yeah. yeah. Intelligence pervades everything, including human beings. Yeah. And it is just amazing to me that there's this harmony. Yeah. I mean, that when the heavens, like in Psalm 19, the heavens declare the glory of God. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And when David is looking at the stars in Psalm 8, he immediately goes to... Who am I? Right. What is man that you're mindful of him? That's right. And so the stars are like giant fiery sentinels that know the voice of their liege, and they're constantly telling us. And I think, for me, I've imagined uh, Judgment Day kind of, you know, with the angels and everything. We're standing around, and we see, we see flaming messengers like stars, and there's that name and that name, and they're all standing around us going, we were presiding over you for centuries, millennia, testifying to the glory you know, you're without excuse. You knew who we were. And I think there's a lot of that. We need to sort of be reminded that nature speaks of our creator for our exhortation and benefit. Yeah, that's right. Like the poem that you read. It's wonderful. Anything else you'd like to say? You are going to be in a book with us. I say us. We have uh, uh, the story of the cosmos coming out uh, on the anniversary of the Apollo 11 moon landing uh, this July. And uh, just briefly talk a little bit about your contribution there and uh, why you decided to, to join us. We were so grateful to have you. It was so cool. Oh, it's so, I'm excited about this book. Really, truly. So many wonderful contributors and so many wonderful topics. The chapter that I've contributed centers on an idea um, from my dissertation, actually, that's related to some of the philosophical musings of Johannes Kepler. One of his most famous statements that anyone who's ever read any history of science from the time of the scientific revolution may recognize is that he said, when we study nature, we are essentially thinking God's thoughts after him. Yeah. So it gets to this idea of intelligence being made manifest in nature, but the human mind itself being structured in such a way that it's able to grasp the rationality that pervades the cosmos. Yeah. So that's the theme of the chapter. And I talk about a little bit of the history behind the idea because it wasn't that this idea was original with Kepler, just the way he explicated it and the fact that he was a pivotal figure in the scientific revolution in terms of applying mathematics to nature in exactly the way he did and looking for physical causes mm -hmm. instead of um, 
supernatural intervention in the cosmos. Yeah. You know, he was he was a scientist's scientist. Yeah. You know? Yeah. Yeah. So that's why I chose him as the pivotal figure for my research and why I wanted to do my chapter on him specifically. So I go into some of the history of those ideas and how they kind of culminate in Kepler and then going forward from Kepler into the 20th century physics revolution. Um, how have we seen this idea persist? Mm. And I talk about Planck and Einstein and Wigner mm-hmm. and, and how we're still asking these very same questions. We're still asking, why is the universe rational? Why can we apply mathematics to it so beautifully? Why is the human, um, aptitude for mathematics so incredibly advanced when it seems that that wouldn't confer any survival or reproduction advantage right. to us. It would, it would be sort of ad hoc to try to explain why math would help us right. survive. If you're just scratching out a living, shooting deer and drawing stuff in your cave, you know, Og doesn't need to know what pi is. Yeah, yeah. He doesn't need to be able to do differential equations. He doesn't care or... about spectroscopes and, yeah, yeah, yeah. and the quadratic equation. And, 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 you know, the Lascaux painting, cave paintings don't have, uh, don't have uh, you know, irrational numbers on them. That's right. You know, <laughs> <laughs> that would be really cool. Or platonic solids, platonic which would solids. also be really cool. <laughs> you know, but, but Plato's cave should have, if they find Plato's cave somewhere, it would probably have. It probably would. You know, there you go. On the wall, yeah. There's your next book. Yeah. Solid Objects in the Cave of Plato. Ancient Discoveries of Knowledge in the Grecian World or something like that. That's a great title. And then you just you just have a a cave with platonic solids and some well, it could be a novel. We could collaborate on a novel. It would be a fun story about some archaeologists who go to Greece and find a cave with platonic solids and (laughs) mathematics. Yes, let's do it. Let's do it. All right, and I'll close with this. Come wander with me, she said, in regions yet untrod, and read what is still unread in the manuscripts of God. And I think that's your book is one of those manuscripts in the bigger manuscript of God that is pointing a generation. This would be great for teenagers, um, great for your homeschooling, great for college age, kids going into college, great for you as an adult or a busy mom. This is a very readable book. It's very enjoyable. It, it will, you will have a lot of, uh, uh, a lot of aha moments and oh I didn't realize it was that easy and oh that's so cool and I never knew that uh, even with my own knowledge of science and cosmology this was a book that I was doing those things and I took a lot of notes so it's a great book it is Science and the Mind of the Maker What the Conversation Between Faith and Science Reveals About God by Melissa Kane Travis Melissa thank you for taking out so much of your busy time from being a mom being super teacher and being a grad student and having a husband who is a BMW mechanic. That's fantastic. I don't know how you had time for me at all. Oh, thank you for having me. This was a lot of fun. It was fun. So, uh, we will, uh, we will, maybe we'll hook up again. And before the book comes out, um, do some speaking engagements. I hope to get some of the authors together, maybe get all the authors together and That'd do be some, so fun. do some conferences somewhere down here. I mean, we're trying to have a book release down here in the next summer. So, uh, we will be in touch. Thank you so much, Felissa, for joining us on good heavens. Thanks. Thanks.